Cinema Journal presents Acamedia. I am Christine Becker. I'm Michael Kackman. And we are not in the bunker not right in the bunker. now. No, there's a football game on campus right now. Which means and you don't go to campus. No, and it's especially like a really big one. So all day long, there will be... Notre Dame, Michigan. Yes, the bunker will be surrounded. That's right. We're here. We are in... I, what, do, what do we call this? Is this like a, it's an off-campus undisclosed location? Undisclosed location. I think yeah. that's the best. We don't want the drones to find us. So. No. <laughs> no. Well, and the start of college football also signifies the start of the semester. So how is your semester starting out, Michael? The hardest thing, well, one of the hardest things for me is internalizing my sense of my schedule. And so um, feeling like I'm, until, you know, until you get like your class schedule, like, set in your mind you just kind of are walking around in the sense of kind of vague panic like like you might have missed a class or something you, you know what i mean yeah that's I, how i feel right now well during the semester or during the summer i never know what day it is because i'm so used to living my life based on a syllabus like mm-hmm. i have my syllabus in my head and i know the days i teach the days i don't teach and that's how i kind of regulate my life right but then when it does start up and especially the fall is tough because you've had those three months away and you forget how to talk and mm-hmm. stand and gesture and think. So the fall is always the, that first two weeks is especially a, a, a level of tired that I forget also how tired you get. So right. it takes a couple of weeks to get right. the, you know, it's such an adrenaline dump mm-hmm. the classroom is. And so then you like, you kind of have to re-regulate your whole energy and stuff. Yep. But we're good to go now, and we are good to go with today's, uh, or this month's Acomedia podcast. So what do we got on tap for this Well, episode? we've got an interview uh, that I did with Courtney Brandon-Donahue about uh, local media production for uh, major multinational studios. Fantastic. And then I sat down with, well, I didn't sit down. It was all over Skype, but mm-hmm. I, I sat down and they were sitting as well. So I guess technically I did sit down with the crew behind In Transition, the new videographic uh, essay journal. And I learned a lot about the potential uh, for video essays and some of the challenges of them. Excellent. Good stuff. Fired up. Here we go. We are joined by Courtney Brandon-Donahue, who is an assistant professor of cinema studies at Oakland University in Rochester, Michigan. Welcome. Thank you. It's It's good good to to have you here. We're here to talk to you about your recent article in Cinema Journal, Sony and Local Language Productions, Conglomerate Hollywood's Strategy of Flexible Localization for the Global Film Market. Okay, so... What is it's a tongue local twister. La- yeah, it is. No, that's good. It's it's descriptive, and that's that's very helpful. So, what is local language production? Can you local explain how that works? Productions. Uh, it is a strategy that has been around for a while with the Hollywood studios, but it is a term, a production strategy that Fox, Warner, Sony, um, all the major studios have been developing um, on a wide scale since the 90s. So my article is looking specifically at Sony and how they make local language, so non-English language films, in local markets outside of 
um, Anglophone market. So mm -hmm. to like move that beyond the jargon, basically they'll go to Spain and they'll have a, a local office there and they'll co-produce a Spanish language film for Spain as a market. Or they'll go to Brazil and they'll produce a Portuguese language film for Brazilians for that market. Now, some of these are adaptations of things that were originally made for the U.S. market, and some of them are completely local productions. Is, is that right? Or Very rarely are they adaptations for the local market. Uh, it, occasionally. Fox seems to be doing more of that. Like, they did a local language uh, remake of, like, Sideways. But mostly they're, they're um, original screenplays. They're developed within the local market. So, uh, essentially, these are... It's, they may be developed in-house, so like this, so for example, Brazil. Uh, the Brazilian office will look at scripts. They may develop something with somebody they know, but for the most part, these are coming from local screenwriters. These are coming from local production companies, and they're getting pitched ideas to get involved with. So they're partners. They're not the sole producer. They're not the sole distributor. Mm -hmm. But it's, it's something that's tailored towards that market. How distinctively uh, connected to Sony do you think that, actual content is that they end up doing in these local markets? I love that question because essentially this was, this was originally my question. My question was what happens when Sony comes into a commercial fil film industry, you know, mainstream filmmaking in, say, Brazil, which is a, one of the largest markets in Latin America, one of the right. most robust. They make over 100 f films a year. Uh, what, what, how do, you know, what is Sony's stamp? Like what is their footprint? And mm -hmm. uh, you see it. It's harder. It's really hard to, to trace. You can, you, can, you can follow the money and see, okay, how much money are they actually putting into this? You can follow this in terms of the labor. Okay, who's actually involved in this and what are they doing? Um, but a lot of the times you see it mostly when they're cutting the film, when they're giving notes. Um, they're, they're always chasing this, like, what is commercial? What, like, is this a viable product? Um, and so you'll see that. So you'll see it in the marketing, which they do. If you know if they distribute it, they do the marketing, and you can kind of tell how they package it differently. Um, but it's, I mean, that's the hardest question of all. You know, is this Hollywood? Is this Sony? And right. so what I end up coming up with in the end, um, which may probably comes out in the larger project um, that I worked on, is based on my dissertation, um, is that you know what Sony is not just Hollywood. It's like this hybrid, and it's flexible. Um, so what Sony looks like in Brazil is going to be very different than what Sony looks like when they make Spider-Man. Um, so the question really is, what does Sony Brazil look like? Right. And especially, you know, these companies, I mean, is, is there a, with few exceptions, it seems like these are not really companies that you could characterize as having a kind of corporate brand, certainly not in terms of content, right? I mean, they're kind of all over the place in terms of the stuff that they're producing. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that was another kind of question I was interested in. So what does it mean when they're involved in the television and film industry elsewhere? I mean, you can kind of see there are certain types of like tentpole English language films that say on the Sony Pictures, the, 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 ba the based in LA, like they have a certain type of film that they make, what they're looking for, how it, for it performs. But when you get into something like the Brazilian market, no, absolutely not. Um, the kind of corporate, it's still there. Um, they talked to me about how communication and internal workings are very Sony versus very Fox, or the hierarchy is very different. But when it comes down to the product, it's it's much more it's much more fluid and and flexible and harder to nail down. And I suppose, well, you you touch on this just very briefly. 
seems like one of the few studios that still has that kind of corporate brand to it is Disney, which is not, I mean, that's, that's not the, the, at the center of your work here, but, but that's one where you still have this kind of sense that, that there is a, a, a discourse or an ideology of Disney-ness that is coming through the content. Yeah. And it's interesting because when I, um, when I expanded beyond the dissertation the past two summers, I've been doing field work and I've been talking to, and the, the project now is I'm looking at the various studios. So I'm, I'm moving beyond Sony and it's fascinating to talk to the different, like what is, how does Warner Brothers even communicate with me versus Fox? How is Disney? And I did interview the, um, the main guy at Disney in London and that was the most fascinating interview I've ever done because it was just spin over and over. I, I mean, it was everything from how I had to come in and how I had to check in to have my picture taken and the information. It was just very much like this controlled uh, PR machine in a way that this other studios aren't. So absolutely. I mean, I would say that. I don't know, you know, for, for Disney. I mean, Disney's not really in the local language productions as strongly as the other studios, too. Probably because of this. Right. That's an interesting way to think about it. You know, because my like the work that I've done in, in this area historically is all about distributing U.S. content. You know, it's not this this kind of the development of the local language production um, units that you're talking about is it's a much more recent phenomenon. It's not just about um, kind of classic cultural imperialism selling American crap anywhere that you can possibly find a market. Absolutely. And we've seen this big change. I mean, I'm not saying that, you know, Hollywood still has a huge, huge control over the, over the distribution pipeline internationally. I mean, that is something that we can still say. Things are changing, and they're becoming a little bit more localized and nuanced in their approach. They're very aware of the way that they've been seen. Uh, they talk about things in terms of cultural imperialism and globalization. The, the, a lot of the executives, the management, will utilize this discourse, which is so fascinating to me, and kind of spin it. Um, but yeah, since the, I mean, since the 90s, um, I mean, the international market's been always important. But we've seen a huge huge increase in the returns that are coming back, at least theatrically on the international side, are they make twice as much internationally than they do domestically. And so things are they're tailoring content, they're tailoring their strategies to approach this market in, in new ways. So local language production was definitely a huge industry-wide experiment. And some people failed at it, and some people are still in the game. But um, they're, they're just scrambling trying to figure out the, the media landscape right now, uh, whether it's Local language, local language, localized content, or even just uh, the home home media. Now, they talk they talk about that too. I mean, a lot of these DVD home entertainment markets are crashing in these local markets, and all they have is theatrical. And so, when you only have theatrical, you you know they're trying to think about okay, how do we get involved besides just the big tentpole English language pictures that come through? That's that's very interesting. And and to go back to to just a little bit of an earlier part of what you were saying. You're getting the sense from talking to these executives that that they are reinventing the practice in a way that's that's more culturally sensitive or more responsive to the local communities that they're working within. And it's interesting because the management that I talked to, I've I in the past year and a half, I've only was when I really started interviewing some of the like LA uh, people on the international side. But the majority of the people I talked to in Europe and Brazil are their local management. I mean they. They run the Sony office, they run the Fox office, but you know they came out of the local industry and they have a very different viewpoint and they have very different relationships and they have a very different idea about creating and j- circulating content for their local audience. And it's, it, they conceptualize it differently, 
that the, this idea of cultural sensitivity and localization, they, they imagine differently uh, in a way that's more on the ground, of course, than the, the folks in L.A. who, are, depending on the studio, rely heavily on these local managers. Right. So the So in this sense, the studio is then, what, infrastructure and capital and distribution? And content is essentially a local matter with regard to the local production. Yeah. But I will point out, and this is also important, that you think about, okay, how, depending on the market, Germany is doing really well with local language productions. And so they're, they'll make maybe six or more a year, like Warner Brothers. But, you know, in Brazil or the other kind of mid-range markets, they maybe do two to four a year. And that's as opposed to maybe the 20, right? Like the 20 or so... Um, it could be like 15 to 20 English language films they're distri distributing. So they're still distributing more, but they do more work with the local language productions because they talk about, and even some of these executives talk about being frustrated that, you know, these films come to us already done, we get promotional stuff and we just kind of tailor it and cut trailers and there's less creative work available with because if you get a product that's done from the English language films as opposed to local language films where they're starting, I mean, they're there from pre-production to distribution and they see it all the way through if they come in as co-producers and a lot of them kind of see that themselves as an asset see them as bringing something to the studios that nobody else could and it's interesting the kind of uh depending on again depending on the studio's culture the agency or the kind of uh power that they see themselves bringing what they with uh to, to the to like the their la you know hierarchy over overseers <laughs> <laughs> it's really fascinating. So can you can you tell us a little bit about how it is that you did this research, how you cultivated these relationships and did these? Cause it sounds like you did really quite a bit of uh, corporate ethnography here. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's been a wild ride, <laughs> to say the least. Um, I was... It started before... As I was coming out in graduate school when I was working on my dissertation, and I was... I had done field work in Brazil. I would you know, I'd written and published some on, on Brazilian contemporary cinema, and I started noticing that all of the, you know, top ten commercial, you know, really popular films were being co-produced. These are, like, you know, huge blockbusters like City of God and, and more recently, Elite Squad, with um, major uh, studio players. So they were, like, so local Sony, local Warner. And so I'm thinking, okay, what's going on here? Why are all these films, what does it mean when a, a studio's involved? And so I was like, okay, I'm going to focus this and thank for my, my wonderful committee at UT uh, helped me focus it. And so I was like, okay, I'm going to look at Sony. They were considered the pioneer who kind of started this. And I focused on uh, two countries that I'd had experience in, field work. And from there, it was, it was a snowball effect. I, got, I started talking to anybody I could. I was asking advisors, other academics, uh, critics, and... The first, uh, the first, the guy who really opened the door for me was the, he used to be the head of the MPA, uh, the VP for Latin America. He's American and he's still in Brazil. I know, and so should the power of the MPA. Um, he knows a couple of academics, introduced me. He just basically, this is the story I always tell people, he pulled out his Blackberry and he's like, who do you want to talk to? And so he just started saying, okay, I, I got into with producers, distributors, um, like the main the main folks in, in Brazil and Bra the Brazilian cinema is is a small market. I mean I mean compared I mean it's small it's a small world. Like they all know each other. And so once you get that person, they'll introduce you to that person. And 
Um, similar thing in Spain. And the thing is, like, I speak Portuguese, so that made a huge difference. So the fact that I could do interviews in Portuguese, I can tell that my, 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 my understanding of Brazil was when I went to Germany last summer, and that, you know, I was doing it in English. But, um, so yeah, it just kind of turned from there, and then I'm developing it into a book project right now. And uh, it's for uh, the International Screen Studies series with BFI, which is edited by Paul McDonald and Michael Curtin. And um, I've done two years of field work since then, and again, using contacts. MPA contacts. Um, I have another contact in the Brussels office, the MPA, and um, he's gotten me in touch with people. I'd ask a local manager in Spain, and he would introduce me to somebody in Germany, who'd introduce me, introduce me to somebody. So, you know, snowball. It's a longer yeah. story than it needs to be, but it's a no, lot it's of really in- it's legwork. No, it's really interesting, and it's because it seems so, you know, obviously we want to try and figure out how these industries work, and we can look at look at the economics of uh, their operations, and we can look at um, distribution of programming of various sorts, and um, and we can theorize how power is flowing. But it's really, really great to have this opportunity to talk to people who are involved in the process and able to reflect upon it. And of course, they're you know they're all they can do is represent their own position within these complicated machines. But absolutely, uh, but their but their positions are really, really interesting. Mm-hmm. And it seems, um, you know, the fact that you you have these connections to these local managers gives you a really interesting insight into um, an entire corporate system. Yeah, absolutely. Because you're going to get a very different viewpoint from somebody who's in the local territory than somebody who's going to be working in the L.A. office, somebody who has worked for Sony for 25 years and has seen things change, as opposed to somebody who I recently talked to in Brazil who's worked at Fox, Warner, and Sony, and she's seen... She was able to kind of uh, critique <laughs> uh, critique the, the the cultures of the other ones, and it's interesting. I mean, you know, you get it's culture. You get there's cultural differences too. So you know, the Brazilians are more and more willing to talk to talk to me and give me the dirt than I would say um, you know some of the other markets I was in. And part oh, of that was probably it was in Portuguese, but um, it's interesting to kind of see who how they kind of dealt with me, and it's not just you know it's 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 local. Um, local cultures and studio cultures, like all these layers that are existing here, and how they imagine themselves. Like, who who are they? Are they are they Hollywood? Are they Brazil themselves? And they're negotiating this, and they talk about themselves as they don't use the word inter- intermediary, but I I use that word. How they imagine themselves. It's fascinating, and it's always changing. And it sounds like it has continued to change, right? I mean, the the article in Cinema Journal you finished a couple of years ago, probably, and represents work that you've been doing over the past several years. Yes. But you've been, you've started going back to some of these places to extend this research, right? Yes. Uh, and so it's a little different now? It is, that's, that's the fun part, is I go back and have to figure out, okay, what's going on now? And I mean, that's the beauty of the contemporary industry, is that you're running after what's happening. Um, it's exciting and frustrating. And, but yeah, this, the Cinema Journal article is based on field work I did 2010 to 2011, and then I went back last summer. I spent the summer going to five different markets um, in, in Western Europe and interviewing people there, um, local producers and, and local managers and uh, policy people, kinds of, uh, commissions, things like that. And then this, I just got back from Brazil. So I was there for a month re- meeting with contacts again, similar local managers, producers. And, um, I mean, that was the thing. It's like I was asking that. Okay, so I kept asking them, what's going on now? Things have changed, and it was really interesting talking to Sony people again, 
because you know even getting people to talk to you again is is a huge challenge. But getting the, you know, the Sony people and I have a good rapport, so they met with me again and. They're just saying, you know, everything's different, you know. They, we don't have as much money for it anymore. We're still making them. And so I'm having to tweak and constantly revise my theories about local language production strategy because it's constantly in flux. So how has it changed? Um, it depends on, well, since then, a couple of them have dropped out. Uh, they're not making, Sony's not as active anymore. And, you know, that's kind of how I ended the article. Um, they were telling me that, particularly Sony, that because the returns have been down for that studio, the, the, for uh, theatrical, because of the way the tax, in, tax incentive structure works, they now have less money to invest in local productions. So I'm realizing the complexity of this, at least for that market, and how they're bound together in these so many different ways, uh, is making it's challenging for them to get and and what and 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 uh, any little things like the genres that were popular four years ago are not popular anymore. Favela films are not nobody makes those anymore. Um, it's all about the comedies, cheap comedies that they can get made. Um, so and biopics, they like those too. How much can you generalize from this case with regard to things that are happening in other kind of regional media capitals and that kind of thing? Are these are these industry wide transformations or are they national or regional or? All of the above. And that's what you kind of have to tease out. So there are industry-wide things going on with local language productions and how just across the board, particularly like Warner and Fox, who are the strong ones now at this, how they're approaching the markets and how the corporate structure is affecting uh, what they're doing. But at the same time, we're having to watch regionally and nationally how these markets are performing, what's popular, how many, w what's happening uh, with the local managers, um, and so that it's it's all it's all kind of happening at once, and it's something that it's hard to generalize. Generalize, and so I find it easier to generalize in terms of perhaps a corporate culture and strategy as opposed to everything always works like this in this mar market. Because that's what that ultimately is the stable thing that you're well, relatively stable thing that you're trying to theorize, right? The yeah. The corporate yeah, operation rather than the local environment. Yeah, exactly. Although that they're kind of both, they're absolutely both impacting and shaping one another. And yeah. that's kind of, the, that's the contribution or the, the main thing that I'm really hoping to, that comes, comes forth in this, that it's not this top down and it's not completely free local. It's the tension and the negotiation between these two spaces. Um, the local strategy, the industry-wide strategy, the corporate strategy, that is... Uh, that's that's the really exciting part of this project. So, well, this is this is really interesting, and I wanted to thank you also for uh, doing that Cinema Journal Afterthoughts piece, which reflects on some of these changes. I would encourage all of our listeners to take a take a look at that. This is the exactly the kind of project for which doing an afterthought reflective essay is is really a a nice companion piece to the to the primary article. It was great. Thank you so much for. I I love the afterthoughts. I, I think it was it was helping me think through. I was in the house halfway through my trip in Brazil. I was getting so frustrated because the people that I half the people I, I talked to before either had left. That's another thing. You get turnover. Um, had left the the studios or they were somewhere. Or they wouldn't. You know they were busy. Or the World Cup happened and they're still depressed. So it was a really good opportunity for me to sit back and go, okay, where where am I going with this? Where am I at now? How have things changed? And just reflect on the research process itself, because I'm such a nerd when it comes to methodology. 
and I love talking about field work. It's and everybody's you know your process and 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 how you, how you you get your access. That's probably one of my you know nerdiest things I like to talk about. Well, it's pretty fascinating. So, what comes next? Are you, do you have more work to do on this project in the field, or I think I think I'm gonna cap it. I was counting. I'm still. I have, I have a lot of transcribing to do from these interviews. Um, yeah. But I think I've. I, I spent the past two summers doing follow up and additional. I may do a trip to LA in the next six months. But right now, I gotta barrow down and write the book. So <laughs> finish the book. So um, yeah, I. I think it's it's uh, processing, analyzing, writing at this point. Excellent. Well, good luck with that. And we're looking Thanks. forward to reading it. Thanks. And thank you so much for joining us. It's really well, it's enjoyed the pleasure. conversation. I'm a huge, huge fan of Echomedia, so I tried not to fangirl just now, but it's a pleasure. Uh-huh. <laughs> Terrific. Thanks. So that was a really fascinating glimpse. I, you know, media industries is one of my areas of interest, so I read a lot of trade papers, that kind of stuff, but they don't cover outside the U.S. that much. Right. And so it was really refreshing to get an in-depth look at those aspects. Yeah, I was thinking about you and, and the classes that you teach mm-hmm. uh, when, I was, when I was talking to Courtney. Uh, it's, it's really hard to get those kind of interior glimpses, especially when it's you know, trying to get to somebody who's not just uh, um, reflecting the company line in a really predictable PR kind of way. Yeah, it's it, that can be a challenge. She writes about that actually in her uh, po- her afterthoughts and postscripts uh, essay on the Cinema Journal website. We'll post to that on our website. And that has been, um, I had an interesting experience teaching a course on media industries last semester, and I had a number of media industry workers Skype in, some alum, mm-hmm. you know, alumni from my school, just people I knew. And it was really fun because some of them were kind of towing a certain company line and you want to frame that for the students. But then afterward, you know, when they are off the line, then you can talk to the students and say, what did you think of that? Mm -hmm. Do you see between the lines of anything they're saying? Um, Or it's really great if you have someone where you've talked to someone from distribution and then someone from production and sort of say, how do those two go together? In what ways are there conflicts there? Mm -hmm. You can really sort of dig in in that way. So I think that's... That kind of research, talking to industry people, is really great on multiple levels. Number one, you get information you couldn't get otherwise. But number two, you also can then assess how they're saying it relative to the context and kind of make an argument out of that as well. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, we, the new kinds of ways of getting access to the way that the industry works has... I mean, it's forced us to complexify our understanding of what an industry is, which I think is really good. I mean, it yeah. helps to avoid some generalizations. And it occurs to me, maybe we can put in a plug. There is a new media industries journal. Elisa yes, Perrin indeed. and uh, Paul McDonald and a few others are behind that. And the new mm-hmm. issue just came out, I think, a few weeks ago, summer. Um, and so we'll link to that on our website. I think it's a really great you know, uh, journal dedicated to media industry study. So some great potential there. Yeah. And I know we've mentioned this already, but I do want to encourage everyone to give a, a quick look at uh, Courtney Brandon Donahue's postscripts and afterthoughts piece that directly reflects back on, on uh, her work on this article and then thinking about what it means to revisit it a little bit down the road. Yeah. Good stuff. Yep. Speaking of new journals, yeah. um, that's a, a, a very smooth lead in to my, 
segment. And I'll start with a full disclosure. So this is a piece on In Transition, a new video essay journal. I am one of the project managers for it, representing Cinema Journal, and it is a Cinema Journal enterprise, and so we're doing a piece on something that is in-house, right? So this is so, synergistic cross-promotion. Exactly. Speaking of media industries, yes, yeah. we are synergistically... Um, so just keep that in mind, you know. Um, but I think the upside is, again, access, right? I had direct access to everyone involved. Wow, I'm going to have to do an interview with you about this. Oh, there you later. go. That's, okay, we'll, we'll have that. that'll be next month's segment, a meta segment. Yeah. Anyway, so I talked to the three editors behind the journal, who are Drew Morton, Catherine Grant, and Christian Keithley, and then also Jason Mattel, who's also a project manager on behalf of Media Commons. So here's what I came up with. Great. In Transition, as its subheading tells us, is a journal of videographic film and moving image studies. In more simple terms, it is a home for video essays. It's a joint project between Media Commons and Cinema Journal, hosted on Media Commons site with project managing provided by myself on behalf of Cinema Journal and Jason Mattel on behalf of Media Commons, which is under the direction of Avi Santo. But the real heavy lifting has been done by its three editors, Catherine or Katie Grant, Christian Keithley, and Drew Morton. I spoke to each of these main players about this venture and what hopes they have for the site. But to start with a little insight from the Cinema Journal perspective, I'll note that publishing video essays was one of editor Will Brooker's early ideas when he took over stewardship of Cinema Journal, along with all the other ideas for online initiatives. The only problem was neither of us had much experience in the area. Then word began to circulate that Drew Morton was hoping to start a video essay journal, and he takes up the story from there. I, I really cared deeply about this format, and since 2007, when I first started kind of working in it, no one had kind of taken it to the next step. So I approached Abby and Jason a bit about it, and then it became clear that Chris and Katie were probably working on a different project along these lines, and Avi and Jason just said, hey, you got to go figure out who's doing what because we don't need three of these and I agreed with them and uh, it just was kind of a happy coincidence that everyone was willing to combine forces and and work on this. And as Chris Keithley notes the fact that there already was this groundswell of interest was key to getting in transition off the ground. In transition happened very quickly from proposal to to launch happened very quickly but it wasn't just we had been thinking about this clearly the the groundwork had been laid in a lot of different ways and even something like SCMS and their statement on fair use. This can't happen unless certain things like that are already in place the way that was. So the impulse was there, as was a ready-made platform on Media Commons. But the in-transition editors decided not to start it out with open submissions. Katie Grant explains why the first four issues of the journal instead offer content curated by the editors. And she also discusses the formation of the editorial board. We are aware that although lots of people are doing this, there's still not a critical mass of people doing it. Um, and we probably wouldn't have got very far if we'd expected to work with open submissions from day one. So very quickly we had the idea that curatorial content for the first year would be a wise move, that there was a lot, there was a lot of pre-existing work, some work of extremely good quality. There was a range of work which would raise really interesting questions for us about the spectrum of work we might want to welcome and that we wanted to generate discourse about video essays. So again, what better way really than to, to comment on existing forms of work? So you know, that's giving us some time to generate a few more norms, if you like, um, as far as we're willing to do that. 
Um, and then the formation of the editorial board. Um, you know, sometimes that can be a difficult job when you're setting up a new journalist to get people to accept yet another responsibility for service in, in as scholars. But with this, we had the opposite experience. You know, we, we knew who to contact. We, the, you know, we had a, an existing body of people who were interested in producing this work, many of whom were very well-established scholars, some of them the foundational scholars of our discipline. And, you know, we were lucky that almost everyone... Uh, said yes to us immediately and we're really delighted to be involved so we kind of find ourselves with this incredibly um, special editorial board you know which would be the envy of any other journal really these days so that that was a, a thing I don't think we could have predicted was the amount of support that we would get very quickly. For this venture to take off, the academic credibility of that support is crucial from the weight of those individual editorial board names to the legitimacy offered by the Cinema Journal and Media Commons stamps. Only with those components could this venture be more than just a site for hosting videos. That was an extremely important um, motivating factor in getting this established was not just to have a journal of videographic film studies, but the crucial thing in so many ways was Media Commons and Cinema Journal coming together mm -hmm. to provide the kind of disciplinary validation for this kind of experimentation. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think that's important because they, they, it wasn't that there was a shortage of places to publish in. I mean, you could, apart from people putting things on their own blogs like I have the habit of doing, or, you know, you could place essays with Mediascape. Vectors obviously have published video essays for years um, and other journals. But it was about, in a way, creating a, a bespoke place just for them, a place that had a sole focus where discourse about them as a form could, could develop. And that's really the idea for, for In Transition. The crucial point here, of course, is making the scholarship count in terms of getting a job, getting a promotion, getting tenure. Jason Mattel explains. The reason why I really cared about this project is because we have a fairly new and fairly innovative form of scholarship here that there are people who are doing it and doing good work and there are people in places of authority, you know, tenured professors and well-known scholars with, with strong reputations who are producing this material. However, we have no way of validating it to count in our academic ecosystem. So for me, that was the hook that made it a great project for Media Commons. Um, I think that any website that had a decent content management system could go ahead and publish video essays, and they do. It's very easy to embed a video from Vimeo or YouTube on a WordPress site. But what Media Commons is bringing to the table and why the project appealed to Media Commons is that we are bringing a level of peer review and discussion of what does it mean to do this type of scholarship. Drew Morton's involvement in this is quite intriguing then because he is a junior scholar, an assistant professor of mass communication at Texas A&M University, Texarkana, whereas Chris and Katie are both senior scholars, Chris at Middlebury College and Katie at University of Sussex. Thus far, Drew says he has received positive support from Texarkana uh, for his video essay work, even as he still wants to keep doing traditional work as well. I'm reassured on a micro level by my performance reviews. We have one each year. So I obviously put my work within transition on there and the video essay work I've done that's been published at Press Play and Roger Ebert. So they're happy with that direction. And yet I feel like I have to kind of play it both ways just for my own sense of security that, you know, I'm not going to turn away 
from books and I'm not going to turn away from essays. It's kind of like I'll do a video essay here and then the next project I'll, I'll switch gears and, and do something a little more traditional on the other end. But for me at the end of the day, and this, this may be a little foolish, you know, this is the kind of work I want to do. I want to be able to do a video essay one day and I want to be able to do something more traditional the next. That variety is kind of the spice of my scholarly life and I really appreciate that. So I feel like I've got a home for it now. And I'm just going to I'm going to run with it. And until I get that performance eval that says, hey, you got to you got to carry the torch on the other end a little bit more, too. Jason Mattel predicts that as time passes, this work will become more accepted as on par with written work. And he sees in transition as potentially playing a key role in that future development. We will see people getting tenure based on primarily on their digital work. But no one wants to try to be the first. And there may even be a first out there that I don't know of. But, you know, no one wants to be the poster child for that because there's too much risk. You're basically saying as a scholar, I'm willing to give up my career or at least my current position uh, because I believe that this type of work is so important. Now, I think that we're building a, an infrastructure that can help support the scholars who are trying to do this. A key part of that infrastructure, Jason explains, will be open peer review, meaning in transition will actually publish the editorial board members' reviews of the work alongside the videos. So let's say we get a submission from a graduate student or from a junior faculty member, and it's strong, and we publish it. The reviews will be there readable alongside the watchable video, so that when they go out for tenure or they're applying for jobs, they can submit this not only as scholarship, but they can show the reviews and they can show why this named senior professor said this work was good. By having the open reviews there, you can point committees to say, look at this, understand why this matters, understand why major people in the field have said this is a strong piece of work. And we, we very consciously, when we were recruiting our board, wanted to have names that people would recognize so that maybe a tenure committee or a department chair who's writing the letter um, assessing someone doesn't quite understand video essays. Maybe they don't really have much to say about this particular one, but having Laura Mulvey or Adrian Martin or Kristen Thompson say, this work is strong because of A, B, and C, that's ammunition for a tenure committee to be able to say, look, this major figure in the field respects this work and I can point to exactly why. And I see the goal of In Transition is not to publish video essays, although we're doing that, but rather to establish a set of norms and criteria by which a video essay will be considered scholarship for the purposes of the academy. A key part of expanding that conversation is making In Transition open access. Without the high cost of publishing and distribution endemic to print forms, there's no reason to have In Transition behind a paywall. Plus, the editors simply want the journal to be fully accessible to all. One of the exciting things for me is, is that we're, re we're inventing a new form of scholarly communications here without needing to import the baggage of the old form. There's no way Cinema Journal could publish a video essay, though. You know, there's, there's, we don't have the technology to put that in the bound book or the bound journal. So it has to be digital form publication. 
And by default, that means it's an open access form. Once it's out there, anyone can see it, anyone can link to it, anyone can share it, and anyone can comment on it, and we can create that conversation. Another area of video essay publishing that's still under discussion is form. If I'm submitting a print article to a journal, I have a good sense of what that should look like, but what should be the standards and norms for academic video essays with such issues as length? Katie Grant doesn't actually see the answer to that as much different than for print. There's quite a bit of variation around expectations for, of content and form in written journals, especially since online publishing has taken off. So for me, there's no need to expect a particular amount of length. What we're interested in is new knowledge and the particular forms of new knowledge that can be produced in audiovisual um, forms of expression. Drew Morton agrees and sees advantages in keeping those standards and expectations open, especially at the start of this venture. We don't exactly know what we're looking for. At least I don't, right? Uh, my standards are very different from Christian and Katie's who are you know, more in the avant-garde tradition and I'm kind of overly argumentative and kind of more traditional in terms of that kind of conference paper mode or essay mode. But I think what we've kind of established is that we're going to get a range of opinions on these and we're going to approach our really large editorial board that has, you know, traditional academics, that has film critics, that has um, production uh, folks on it. If you get that range of opinions, I feel like that starts to bring that conversation forward. And I know all of us, Christian, Katie and I, are, are very reluctant to limit that and say this is what a video essay is because we all have these these kind of preconceived notions, and we want to see what the format can evolve into on its own. And beyond the question of video essay work counting for tenure and promotion, there is the issue of its value as a form of scholarly investigation into media. Chris and Katie in particular touted the benefit of this work for better understanding film and television images. Having been through several graduate programs or been in departments in which studies and production are together, there's always a great deal to be gained, particularly students doing cinema studies, learning the most basic things about working with images and sounds. Once they start working with them, they watch them differently. I think there's a tremendous amount for, for film and media scholars to learn by not just watching and analyzing, but by using and reworking and manipulating. They, I think the, the process of learning in the same way that we can often learn a lot more, say, about about a sport if we play it than just by watching it. We don't have to be a lifelong player, but once you try it on, you become aware of certain things you had not been aware of before. So I think there's a, a great practical gain for film scholars in appreciating their object of study and being more sensitive to their object of study. But there's also something about a confidence in our subject, and yeah. that is that is enabled by digital technology. And so what I'm trying to talk about is uh, to people is that if we have a confidence in our form, whether it's television, whether it's film, um, then why don't we want to use audiovisual approaches for these audiovisual subjects? If, we, if, if what we're trying to promote is the understanding of audiovisual subjects, then the use of audiovisual forms is the kind of confidence that we can afford to have now with technology available. In our conversation, Katie highlighted one video in particular that intrigued me. We'll link to it on our website. It's called Wes Anderson Centered, and it is made by an accomplished video essayist named Kogo Nada. In only two minutes and 22 seconds, it will make you see Wes Anderson's films in a new way, argues Katie. It teaches you so much. I mean, obviously you may start as a, a kind of knowledgeable film viewer with some understanding that there's something very specific about the way Wes Anderson frames his, his movies. Um, but this will just take you beyond any initial understanding that you had. 
just purely by juxtaposition, purely by, he, he uses a graphic effect as well of a little traced line that goes up through the center of the frames. And it's so compelling to watch. But the experiential learning of being taken on, if you like, a journey through a, a series of juxtaposed images and sounds that are put together so artfully that you are, your eyes are opened, your ears are opened to what you've been shown in a way that simply watching Wes Anderson's films may not have, you know, they may not have had, led you to the same experiential conclusions, if you like. Okay, maybe you're convinced now. Video essays sound great. Where do I sign up? Well, you can obviously head to In Transition at Media Commons now to watch some, but if you want to make them, how do you get started? As far as the technical aspects of ripping, importing, editing, and so forth, it depends on the computer platform and software you have access to. There are instructional guides for that, and we can link to some of them on our website. But as far as the creative aspects, Katie and Chris say you should just start playing around. You might be surprised at what you find. I would just recommend you start messing around with it. Yeah. Um, and we, the, the, in issue two of um, In Transition 1.2, Chris um, looked at a kind of parlor game that was circulating online that I had something to do with at the uh, audiovisual C group I run, where we basically just got people to create a montage of their 10 favorite films, beginning with a, a letter that they were assigned. And it was a way a lot of people tried to make video for the first time. And in a way, the enthusiasm that with which people took that process up showed to me that it is just about taking the plunge. It's, you know, if you are compelled enough to do something and maybe starting with something that you love is quite a good place, you know, that's how you learn. And, and I guess just with it, as with anything else, if you like doing it, then you'll probably want to do it again. And if you don't like doing it, you probably won't. Hopefully you'll still enjoy watching mm. them. Um, but not, it's not going to be for everyone. You may look at Catherine Grant's impressive work in video essays and assume you couldn't master the form as well as she did, but then you should know that she started out with no production experience herself and just began experimenting, taking advantage of the freedom this new form offered. I guess as soon as I started to experiment, what made me feel even more compelled by it was that this was a new form of research for me, a, res a new form of research process. And I was so surprised at the things I was learning. I thought when I started making these, I'd apply the knowledge that I had of, as, a, as a film scholar. And certainly some of the time that happens. But most of the time, I'm, I'm working the other way up. It's what's happening in the editing process that I'm, you know, that is generating the ideas for me. Instead of me thinking, I'm going to work with that clip, I, I kind of maybe have a slightly more open attitude and think I'm going to work with that film. And then from there, it goes to places I, I could never have imagined. So it's a form of, for me, it's a form of scholarship that's new. And I, I, I can't always communicate that to people until they try it. So, you know, I, I really recommend people try it. If you would like a more professional introduction to video essay production, the In Transition team will have you covered there too. They plan to address the how are these made topic in the journal sometime in the future. But also, quite impressively, uh, Jason and Chris have been awarded an NEH grant via its Institutes for Advanced Topics in the Digital Humanities program, which funds workshops to teach advanced topics in digital humanities. Jason explains what their video essay workshop will entail. What we will be doing is hosting a two-week workshop in June of 2015, and it will be at in Middlebury, Vermont. And we're aiming for 12 participants. Uh, they can be graduate students or faculty. And the two of us and uh, Katie Grant will actually be our visiting lecturer for one of those weeks, um, are going to be running a workshop that 
provides a uh, introductory overview into what video essays are, how to make them, what are the debates in the field, and it will culminate in people creating a video that will hopefully be suitable for publication. And then we will curate a special issue of In Transition highlighting the strongest work. And we'll, we'll have the, those works peer-reviewed um, through our open peer review process so we can sort of demonstrate the strength of those works. And the idea is, is that I think that many of us, and I include myself in this, in this vein, um, we're interested in video essays, but we have absolutely no formal training on how to do it. And we hope that the participants not only learn how to make video essays and maybe get the bug to do it as a form of scholarship, but also learn how to teach video essays. I think that that's another one of the things we want to come out of this workshop is to increase the pedagogical scope of this type of work. If you are interested in this, you should first of all know that the NEH grant means your participation will be fully funded, plus a stipend, which is a very sweet deal. Also, Jason assures me that Vermont in June is lovely. And finally, you should keep an eye out in September for the application information that Jason and Chris will release. We'll make sure to circulate that via Acamedia's social media platforms, as well as cinema journals, and everywhere else we can release information. September will also see the release of the third issue of In Transition. And Katie and Chris, tell us what we'll have to look forward to in that. Basically, in that issue, foregrounding statements by makers who will talk about their experiences of trying to create scholarly work in videographic form. Uh, a range of people, you know, from people who've been experimenting with this for a long time through to people who've just begun, um, people who have started with the approach that I was mentioning about from the film up, if you like, or from the audiovisual material upwards, um, through to people who are trying to adapt written pieces that they've produced for pretty conventional scholarly contexts to try and render those in, in audiovisual form. So it should be really interesting around this issue of taking up videographic film studies. And that issue will also include the first call for submissions from people who are wanting to submit their work to In Transition for consideration for publication, which should begin with issue 2.1 next spring. So people interested in making and submitting work or who have made work and want to submit it should be on the lookout for that. All right, that was an interesting piece. Yeah, it was fun talking to them, especially getting the whole story behind it. And then the larger issues it raises about questions of evaluation, of review, right. of what scholarship is, as well as our, you know, the public face of academia that mm -hmm. we can put out there through video essays. So some really vital issues, I think. Yeah, absolutely. And there may be ongoing dividends that, that come out of this kind of project in terms of conventional academics getting a, a better understanding of what it means to communicate visually. Mm -hmm. you know, it's, it's a great exercise. Yeah, I agree. Um, so if you want to check out In Transition, we will put a link to our uh, to the, the site on our website. You can also find it on the Media Commons website. We'll also put up on our website links to some of the video essays that, the, uh, that were mentioned in that piece. So if you want to check out some of the work that was recommended and get started with the world of video essays, we'll set you up on our website, which is aca-media.org. Come find us. You don't, people don't realize at home, but it usually takes me about 50 takes to properly say aca-media.org. I should probably be saving like all of these clips of, <laughs> we'll have a we could have, we could have our own supercut, like the, you know, it'd be like a Casey Kasem breakdown kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Aka, ah. <laughs>
<laughs> and lots of swearing too, yeah. and more bleeping. Yeah. So. so are you watching anything good lately? We're in that part of the year, as far as TV goes, where the fall season hasn't started yet. Most of the summer shows are done, and then the semester has started, so I don't have time for catch-up. So mainly what I've been watching lately is a lot of baseball, um, especially Cubs baseball. You know, it's very easy to have on when you're lesson planning or something like that. Yeah. So it's good background noise. Now, it's no secret that the Cubs are a bad baseball team. Now. They're, they're a bad baseball team. And they've been bad. Well, of course, they've been bad for a very long time. I mean, in the yeah. light, long scope of things, you know, 100 years. But um, this season in particular, the past few, they've been very it's poor. But they have a strategy in mind. You see the new... GM has this whole strategy, basically cleaned house completely from top to bottom and is now restocking. So this development, right? This season, they're starting to bring up some of these young guys. And so here's why I'm watching and I'm considering this as almost like a narrative, right? This is act one of what will hopefully be a triumphant, amazing playoff run in a few Mm -hmm. years for the Cubs. And so they're starting to bring these young guys up. Some of them aren't that good. One of them is on track to set a record for strikeouts, but the potential is there. There's potential. Every so often he'll have an at-bat, and you'll think, oh, my God, look at that guy. Yeah. So I'm watching basically for the future with this narrative in mind. If I watch, it's as if, and it's kind of like a TV show. This happens all the time, a long-running. You know, I've had people, uh, because I love The Good Wife, and I'll say, you've got to watch The Good Wife, and people say, well, do you, you know, can I just start watching? And you say, well, you know, if you start at the beginning, you get all of the roots, you get all of the character development, all of those relationships. I'm sort of seeing the Cubs that way. Yeah, so the Cubs are now multi-season serial melodrama. Exactly, and so I'm getting the the early character development, right, before they're fully formed. They're just at the start of their arc. Now, of course, as with TV, they could somebody could be killed off. You know, some characters right. could be right. <laughs> eliminated. We could or, have a plane crash. We could have unexpected pregnancies. Right. We could, you know, any any number of things could happen. Any of those things could happen. Hey, you know what could happen? Also, mm. uh, I heard a rumor that at the end of the season, when the uh, minor league affiliations are are renegotiated, mm-hmm. our South Bend Silverhawks are going to make a pitch to the Cubs. Are they to yeah. change affiliation? Yeah. Oh my God. <laughs> I just got super excited. I know. And, and we, How do I like, help make we this could happen? Be here. We could be here for oh, it. That, I'm sorry. You, you put, people may not understand. I'm a lifelong Cubs fan, yeah. and that would be... that. So what is that in our narrative analogy? Because that's that's even like... that's it, sitting is, in the writer's like, room, right? Yeah, like at the development stage. I just something. hope it's not like Cousin Oliver coming onto the show. <laughs> right. Yeah, so, you know, we'll have to see what happens. This All is right. good. I got a petition or something to make that happen. That's... Yeah. That's fantastic. Yeah. Well, we'll and, see what we can do. All right. Excellent. You've been watching anything? Uh, I have been, uh, I finally started in on Sherlock. Figured I ought to catch up on that a little bit. Mm-hmm. And I had a little bit of a hiccup while watching that because I hadn't, I didn't really look at at, at the structure of the show. And so I started in and, and it, you know, the, it does these short series, but, you know, Americans call seasons of three 90 minute episodes. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just hadn't even checked to see like what the structure was. Cause British series can be all over the place in terms of their narrative structure. I mean, they tend to be shorter seasons than American shows in general, but sometimes it's, you know, two or two, three, four episodes. Sometimes it's quite a few more. Right. Um, and so I was a little confused and about, uh, the kind of larger arc of the show. Uh, right. So then once I got, got sort of in sync with that and, and 
did, you know, 10 seconds worth of reading <laughs> into how it works, it made a lot more sense to me. Which is, a, you know, a fascinating thing about TV, the relationship between the part and the whole, yeah. right? And how watching a singular episode can look like a different thing to you if you know something more about the whole. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. The other thing that I watched, uh, and I don't think I mentioned this before, um, is The Bletchley Circle. Oh, I've heard great things about yeah, that. Yeah, it was really, inter- it's, it's very interesting. Um, essentially, the, the cr- creation of a kind of uh, three investigators, investigative team mm-hmm. out of, um, by women who had been doing cryptography, I mm-hmm. guess, uh, at uh, Bletchley House during World War II. Mm-hmm. It's very interesting. Good old British period pieces. Yeah, so I like good. those. All right. What's not to like? All right, ACA Media is produced with the support of ISLA at the University of Notre Dame and the Department of Communication at Denison University. And we are thankful for funding from SCMS and also a DERF grant from Denison University. We're also excited to welcome Jordan Wilson to our production team as a, as a production assistant. So welcome, Jordan. I hope you enjoy your time with ACA Media. We hope to make it worthwhile. Our work would be impossible without the golden ears of our co-producer, Todd Thompson, as well as the heroic work by Bill Kirkpatrick. And if you want to interact with us, you can send us an email at info at media.org. You can find us on Twitter at ACA underscore media. You can find me on Twitter at CRS Becker. Or me at M. Kackman. And, of course, our website, which, again, kudos to Bill Kirkpatrick for the incredible work he puts in each month, putting up links up there. So links to everything on our website from at ACA. No, All right. (laughs) So you know it's a thing. All right. Our website, which you can find at, and I'm going to get this right first time, aca-media.org. All right. Thanks for listening. Nailed it. Yep. All right. We'll be back next month. See ya. Bye.